This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 161. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Michael Blanc. Really excited that you're here. I'm also excited about our upcoming Dealmaker Live conference, end of July, July 26th, 27th in Dallas at the Hilton Anatole. It's going to be, it's a mega event, I would say, almost of the of the year. We have everyone who's anyone in multifamily is going to be there. We got Robert Helms, a real estate guy speaking there, Joe Fairless, and Adam Adams, Corey Peterson. These are a lot of best-selling authors in the space as well. We have uh, people who own thousands, thousands of units, Brian Burke. For example, uh, David Zook has raised, I don't know, $120 million or so. Uh, Reed Goosen is going to be in. Dan Hanford. We have capital raisers there. So if you are interested in multifamily as a, as a passive investor, this is a great way to meet really outstanding operators to invest with. If you're a capital raiser, of course, a great way to not only raise capital, but again, align yourself with operators. And if you're an active syndicator, it's a great way to learn and network and find passive investors as well. So it's really to the event to be at and uh, to get tickets it's the michaelblanc.com forward slash event the michaelblanc.com forward slash event called dealmaker live july 26 and 27 all right so with that out of the way what i love about this business is that you can get started from zero and there's so many ways you can achieve the same thing, which is passive income, long-term wealth. So to drive that point home today, I have Jens Nielsen on the show. It's interesting because he's not from the U.S., but uh, he's very successful now, established in, in the U.S. as an employee, and he's made the shift to entrepreneur, especially a multifamily entrepreneur. So you know, how did he build a personal portfolio of 82 units in less than three years, working full-time? And what's interesting about him, he's used almost every strategy that but we talk about here and there on the podcast, which is basically getting started small using your own money, passively investing, joint venturing, syndication, capital raising, all the different ways you can get started. And what are the, some of the pros and cons of that or active versus passive raising money, joint venturing and how to do it. So this is kind of the all encompassing view into the syndication business. So excited. Let's get right into the show with Jens Nielsen. Here we go. Jens, welcome to the show. Hey, Michael, thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited about this opportunity. Yeah, I, I love your story because you've done so many different things in multifamily. You've been passive, active. You've been kind of in between. You've joined, ventured. You've done a variety of different things, all of which achieves the same thing, which is passive income, long-term wealth. And you're just being very creative about it. So I, I wanted to bring you on the show and get show people all the different ways one can achieve the same goal. So before we kind of get down into the, the nitty gritty of what you've done and the strategies you've, you've employed, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, so if people may be able to hear from my accent or my name, I've uh, I didn't grow up in this country. I actually what? left. <laughs> I'm trying. It's been 23 years. I actually came. I lived. I, I was born and raised in Denmark and uh, moved to the U.S. Well, via London, England, in like the early 90s. Moved to the U.S. to the East Coast, um, 1996, and had a crazy life with travel all over the world for the industry I was in. So I've been like to like 40 different countries, I think, through my job back in the day. So that was super exciting and uh, slowly moved west. I moved from the East Coast, Maryland to New Mexico. And now I'm in a tiny town in southwestern Colorado, kind of the outdoor person's paradise, like to you know, ski and bike and everything else. So that's where I am now. I see you have a picture of uh, Monument Valley behind you. That's not very far from where I live. So. Uh. <laughs> 
been in IT for like my whole life, but that shift to more of an entrepreneurial mindset, you know, started occurring like three or four years ago. So obviously you got into real estate investing. First of all, before we talk about again, what you did uh, and people always interested, hey my gosh, I'm sitting in a cubicle and I, I'm thinking of a way out. Before we get into that, why were you even looking for some solution? What was the problem you were looking for and why do you think real estate was a solution to that? You know, the challenge you have as an employee is the day you stop working, you stop getting any money. We've been taught to pay into a 401k and, you know, and you retire by the time you're 65, which I think is maybe would have been possible for our parents' generation. But right now, I think that's really a challenge because I don't think you can't save yourself to wealth and, you know, with the ups and downs of the stock market. So there's all these things that I could see coming down the road. I was like, I don't really have a good plan for this. So like, what am I going to do? And I thought, you know, building some passive income streams, it would give me some flexibility, you know, either now or for, you know, retirement in the future and so forth. So that was kind of the mindset of like, I got to do something to really secure my family's financial future. You're one of the few individuals on, on the planet that actually has a long-term view at the end, which I find admirable. <laughs> so it, it sounds to me like it was kind of like your, your long-term retirement plan. Now that you've gotten into it a little bit more, has your goal shifted at all since then? Yeah. Then I saw like, this is like super exciting. Real estate is, you know, so many ways to make money and help people and just get involved, you know? So I'm like kind of focusing more on, can I build enough passive income so I can maybe, you know, retire, if you will, in a, in a couple of years from my current job or just kind of shift into, you know, a different role. I don't have to be in the office eight hours a day. So that's kind of what it's shifted to. So right now, you, you've amassed a, an impressive portfolio. You've done some past investing. How did you get started in all this? Kind of what is your thinking? What were kind of your first steps? You said, oh my gosh, I could take care of my retirement. Maybe you weren't thinking at the time you can quit your job. Now you clearly you can. But at the time, you're like, well, what do I, you know, what are the next steps? What are, the, what are some of the first things you did? Yeah, you know, being kind of an engineer, IT guy, I'm very methodical. So I'm like, okay, let me start reading the books, listen to podcasts. And I just, you know, spent a bunch of time, you know, three, four years ago, listening, reading and stuff. But also I took action. I met up with a guy I know in the local community who's been investing for quite some time. And I met up with him and he just made some, connected me with some, with some broker and said, you know, just reach out to some people, just get started, right? And I just got started by buying a fourplex and say, you know, hey, I had a little some money saved. I bought a fourplex and then, you know, just kind of learning from that. I didn't really get too caught up in analysis paralysis, you know, just take action really. Well, you took action and, and you bought something that you felt you could you could get your hands on, which is a, which is a fourplex, which is great. Talk a little bit about though the difference between the mindset of an employee and, a, and an entrepreneur, because sometimes there's a there's a gap there, right? Oh my gosh, it's kind of scary going out there doing this on your side as an entrepreneur. What are some of the differences between an employee mindset and the entrepreneur mindset? Yeah, I think the major, you know, there's that thing about security. We think that we have security through being in a job, but in reality, you know. In these right-to-work states, if, if your employer is tired of you for a reason, they can let you go the next day, right? So the idea of security, I think, is not really true. So there's that thing to think about. And then just the other thing, you know, in reality, just taking that step to educate and feel comfortable make, you know, making an investment or whatever. And I think just taking action and grow your risk muscle, if you will, right? You take some small steps and you feel comfortable with that and you take the next step and you kind of grow around that. So I really just think it's the idea of just taking some risk, be comfortable with some risk, but also, you know, don't take too crazy risk initially, you know, with your money or other people's money. So, so speaking of risk, everyone defines risk differently. Why did you choose a fourplex? Why not something, say, smaller or why not something bigger? Talk about where your comfort zone was at the time and what led you to that size of building. 
Well, I initially, I quickly decided I didn't want to mess with single family homes. I just felt like you couldn't scale and I couldn't buy anything in my local market because it's way too expensive. So I had to go outside. I had to, you know, go to the nearest bigger city, three, four hours away. So I, was like, I realized I can't self-manage, which was actually my saving grace, I think. <laughs> so, and I realized, okay, you know, fourplex is kind of a sweet point, a sweet starting point because you can get regular 30-year financing on it. And, you know, the price point was pretty reasonable. And I was like, oh, you know, put some money into this. And I felt comfortable with the property manager. I got connected with the people I was going to help manage rehab and everything else. It's like, yeah. This sounds reasonable. I can do it. And it's my own money. I'm putting at risk. You know, worst comes to worst, I can probably sell it again at a similar price. So, talk a little bit about that fourplex. What was it like? Uh, if you're comfortable sharing with the price, what it was, and what did you do to it? You know, what's the current status? Talk a little bit about that fourplex. Make it real for us. <laughs> yeah. So, this is in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This is probably a market most people are not too familiar with. You know, Class C, I think, what do we pay? $120 some thousand dollars for it. Pretty cheap. It needed some work. So, we, you know, went in and rehabbed some units, put, you know, five, six thousand dollars in per unit, new roof, and uh, things like that. You know, so we're probably in for $140,000, $150,000. It ran at $600 a door, so dollars $2,400 income, you know, and my, my monthly payment is $650 for the mortgage and the insurance and stuff and some management fees and stuff. So, you know, it will cash flow $800 to $1,000 a month when it's full. So it's worked out great. We had one person move out a couple of weeks ago who had been there since we took it over, over three years ago. So that was pretty nice. I had a long-term tenant. So you bought it for 100, 120, put some money into it. Was it occupied? And if so, were the rents at market? In other words, what was the impact of all your renovations that you made to it? When we actually bought it, two units became vacant right around that time. So we went in and immediately fixed those two units up and rented them up to market at that point, right? So that worked out great. Only we've actually renovated three out of the four units. There's still an original tenant in the fourth unit. And his rent is lower, but we know that it's going to be expensive to turn a unit. So as long as he's in there paying rent, you're just going to leave him alone. He's maybe $100 below uh, market rent, I think. Now, did you build up any equity by doing all this stuff? So your interest rate's 140 or so. Do you know what the after repair value was or the current value compared to what you put into it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably 175, 180 or something. It wasn't enough to really go. I didn't want to go through and refinance and pull out, you know, 20 grand or 30 grand because it was just not worth the hassle. And the interest rate really low at that point. So I just left my equity there. It's, yeah, I know some people so would you, do you a have kind of thing, but I didn't. It's a great little deal because you would have every unit cash flowing at 200 bucks a month, which is really, really nice. What did you do from, from that point forward? Yeah. So then like quite quickly within the next six, eight months, we bought another fourplex kind of same area, same scenario, a little bit more expensive, a little bit bigger units, uh, didn't need quite as much work. So that's, you know, similar setup. Then we got an 11 unit property eight months later, which was an interesting deal because it was, you know, then you go into commercial and it was seller financed. So we were able to get a 30, I think it's a seven year term, 30 AM for 5% and a pretty low down payment. But what was interesting, but this, this was also a little bit of a rough property. The seller actually allowed us to not start paying for 10 months on the deal. So we were just using a castle to, you know, six, $7,000 a month that was coming in, putting that back into the property and rehabbing units that they became vacant. So that was a good deal, good third deal, I guess, to kind of get. That's nice. So did you have any of your own money in that deal at all? Or was yeah, it completely a little bit, you know, 30 or 40,000 or something, not a whole lot, you know, but, uh, it's just being creative, solving somebody's problem. They, they own it outright. They want to get rid of it. They realize they probably couldn't get it financed. It's, small, it's hard to get smaller commercial property financed. 
So they were carrying a node and it's worked out. Exactly. Why would they do that, right? Uh, what are some of the reasons that this particular person said, yeah, I'll carry a node on that? And how did that conversation go? I mean, the reason for doing it is if they took all the money up front, they would have to pay tax on it and recapture all the depreciation, everything else, right? It could be quite big. So they can you know, just take the, the small down payment and, and monthly payments and they just have to pay money on that income. So that's a benefit to the seller. And, you know, they get 5% versus putting it in a bank and they may get, you know, nothing. <laughs> so they hold the note. So if I stop paying, they can foreclose on it. So I think it's really a, a win-win if you, especially if you own, the seller owns the property outright. It's great. And the conversation was actually, I think they even maybe, my broker said, oh, these guys are looking to do a seller finance deal. So they already knew the benefit of it. That's fantastic. So yeah. you have two quads, you got an 11, um, you self-funded the first two, you got a lot of seller financing for the third, which is great. Then what? Then I was like, oh, well, meanwhile, I also started investing kind of passively. I, uh, you know, because I realized, hey, my IRA money and stuff like that should really be in something that I believe more in than the stock market. So I started investing in, you know, syndications and node funds and everything else. I kind of did a two-pronged approach there, you know, taxable money for income now and then retirement money for income in the future. So uh, I started doing that on the side. Uh, we can go into that later if you want to. But then I was like, okay, I want to I wanna go bigger, right? So I, I kept working with my broker who was, he's kind of a, my mentor too. We found this 38 doors also in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That was, again, a little bit on the, it's, it's a better area. It's probably a B area, C property. So um, we kind of joined ventured on that. I got you know a couple of friends involved in it and, and so forth. So we raised quite a lot of, well, it was a $1.2 million purchase, but because of the work that needed done to it, the bank would only give us 50% leverage on it. So we we raised $600,000 for that deal between like five of us or six of us or something like that. That's pretty cool. So who was a, was this something, a deal that you found and you worked or was this uh, your partner? Yeah, I kind of actually, it was listed on LubeNet for way too much money and everybody had looked at it. It's like, no, but then we actually negotiated the price down from like 1.6 to 1.2 million, got it at that price. And, you know, because my partner had enough kind of cloud in the local community with the banks and say, yeah, we can pull this project off, you know, and stuff. And then we partnered with a, you know, joint venture with some, with a few friends and family to kind of just pull the, the equity together on that deal. So it's interesting because a lot of people are saying, well, if a deal is grossly overpriced, I shouldn't even make an offer on it. You guys decided to, to do that. How on God's green earth did a seller who was asking 1.6 agree to 1.2? How did that work out? Because they were bleeding money every month and they had you know, negative cash flow on it. And it was just a downward spiral for them. They're out of, you know, they were in California, wasn't doing a good job managing it. They were paying all the utilities delinquencies and everything else. So they were just losing money every month and they just wanted to get rid of it essentially. And they realized that they just didn't have the capital to fix it up. I mean, this, this property needed everything. <laughs> Roofs, decking, stucco, parking lot, and the interior renovation. Mm. So it was in rough shape, but it was in a decent neighborhood and, and the bones were solid. So they just, they realized, I mean, they had not done their research. They paid too much for it, 2008, 2009, and they just didn't have good management in there. So this is kind of like everybody's nightmare, right? I want to get into this deal. So these guys basically were in a nightmare. They got, in, yeah. got themselves in a situation. So let's try to reverse engineer this as a, as a warning for everybody else of what things not to do. <laughs> so they overpaid for it. That was, that was problem number one. It sounds to me like they undercapitalized. In other words, they did not put in the capital expenses required to get it up to speed. Yeah. Yeah. And then as the property started deteriorating, the tenant class also deteriorated because people's like, oh, you know, 
who wants to live in something that looks kind of ugly and there's potholes in the parking lot and everything else, right? So you get a tenant that are lower class, if you will. They stop paying delinquencies and you know they don't have any money to fix up. So it's kind of a downward spiral, right? So good management, keep the property, you know, looking decent and uh, just basically stay on top of it. You can't come in on ca- undercapitalized. That's really dangerous. So you took advantage of, a, of an opportunity there. You guys did properly capitalize it. You made the capital improvements. Uh, it sounds like you also put a professional manager in place. Yep, we got that. Right. And did, did, did that, in fact, turn the property around? How's it going today? So I think we're, I mean, we own it slightly less than a year. And I think we're about halfway through the renovations on them. You know, it's, it's significant. You know, it's like eight ten thousand $10,000 a door we're putting into wow. it. Right? But, you know, our rents are actually higher than we initially projected. Uh, you know, and it's really turning it around. I mean, it's vinyl plank flooring, new kitchen, bathrooms, everything else. It looks really nice and the outside is done. So all the outside is done. So it's slowly improving it. We've been trying to preserve cash flow so we didn't, you know, go down to 50% occupancy because that would be expensive too. So we're, you know, kind of as, as units have turned, but it's really, it's really turning around. So it's great. So this sounds a little bit more like a joint venture. Uh, talk about the roles and responsibilities of the partners. How did you guys and why did you guys split up the roles between the partners? Yeah, so it's a joint venture. I mean, you know, we have various people, you know, personally, I help with all the underwriting and uh, find the deal and, and just do a lot of kind of upfront due diligence and look at the budget and work with my my partner who is, um, you know, he's doing a lot of the actual renovations and management of it, you know, and we have some other people that are more involved kind of doing tax returns and finances and stuff like that. So we all try to split out according to what our time and interests are, you know. So. And who was raising the money? How many of the partners was raising money? So we all just did it between us. We didn't raise money from outside, if you will. So it's just, you know, we all pooled our money together to buy the deal. So we don't have any kind of passive investors, if you will. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Awesome. So now you're getting into, you, you started self-funding. You did a little passive investing with your, with your IRA, IRA at the Sun. And now you're starting to partner a little bit. What else did you do? Yeah, so I've actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm under contract to buy another 16 units. We're supposed to close in a week from today. So that's in that market. That was actually, uh, I found that deal for direct mail to send out some letters. And it's been a long time going. I think we're 10 months into this negotiation. So I think we're finally going to close next week. So that's another pretty cool deal there that's coming up. And uh, that's just me and my wife buying that property. And uh, yeah, then I, you know, in addition to my passive investments, I've surrounded myself with people that are doing bigger deals and getting excited about, well, you know, I mean, you like to do syndications and everything else. And I've done it on the passive side, but then I was lucky enough to get surrounded with people that are raising money for some deals, one in Atlanta. And I was invited to help, you know, kind of raise money on that deal being, get on the GP for capital raising and so forth. So that happened earlier this year. And that was really cool because I've spent like the last several years just talking to people about real estate investing, the benefits to it. And a lot of people are like, well, you know, I, I can't buy a house here and rent. It's like, no, you need to become a passive investor in a syndication and have somebody else manage for it and get all the benefits in terms of, you know, passive income and tax write-offs and everything else. So I've had that conversation for a while. And when I, I finally had a deal, people like, oh yeah, I want to invest. It sounds great, you know? So if you have that mindset of there's actually money out there and people are looking for deals, then it's not that hard to find it. So that's what I've found. You know, so I was able to raise $350,000 in a couple of weeks, a few a couple of months ago, and I was pretty excited about that. So Yeah, that's pretty cool. So you raised $350,000 in a few days, but you've been working on it for years. <laughs> you yeah, know, the, exactly. Or the overnight <laughs> success, you know, as they, as they say. What was the main challenge of starting to raise money? You know, before you using your own money, and then, you know, there was kind of some partners that, you know, that you partner with. It wasn't really raising passives, but the conversation is, is a bit different with a passive investor. What were some of the biggest challenges uh, as you shifted to raising money? I think just, you know, coming from the 
hey, I'm not Jens the IT guy. I'm Jens the apartment syndicator or apartment investor or whatever. That's my, you know, kind of position yourself like that with people that you surround yourself with, right? And talk about real estate when you talk to people. So just getting people into that mindset. And I've, you know, I just, I've have a mailing list. And so people I've met slowly over the years, I've added to that list. So I kind of keep them up to date with what I'm doing. And then just basically explain the benefits. I mean, once you show people, it's like, you know, hey, you invest in this, you get 8% return, you hold it for five or seven years, and you double your money and all that. And people are like, wow, and I hardly, and, you know, the taxes are so low. You know, everybody knows that real estate can be a good investment, but most people don't really know how to get access to private investments and stuff like that. The conversation is pretty easy once you get a chance to be in front of people and you present the deal in a logical way. That's kind of what I've experienced. That's pretty great. So it sounds to me like the way you quote get in front of people is you're just talking about your real estate investing. Yeah. Right. So how do you get in front of people? How do you find those people that actually are interested in what you have to say? You know, through going to some meetups, we have a small meetup in this town or actually we had one, but, but those are just through other activities. You know, I'm, a, I'm an avid bicyclist. So I talked to other people that ride bikes and I said, Hey, I just looked at this deal or just kind of mention to anybody that wants to stand still long enough, right? And my wife has been promoting it. So it's just, it's just a slow process of talking to people about it and eventually, you know, and then say, hey, do you know anybody else that's interested and can you recommend me to somebody and stuff? So it's just kind of a, an organic process, right? You know, I don't have a podcast or anything like that, but uh, it's, that's how it's worked out for me. So what's cool about it is you've actually done a bunch of things, right? You, you were the active investor, you're finding deals, then you passively invested, and then you partnered, and now you're actually become a capital raiser for, for someone else. So you've done a bunch of stuff. What are some of the pros and cons of each of those? And, and then maybe end by, hey, you know, what do you like to do best? What are some of your strengths and your passions? And what are you going to do moving forward? And it could be multiple things, but talk about the pros and cons of, of each of those and why you like one better than the other. Yes. I mean, you know, the, the pros with owning your own properties in your own name is that you take all the profits yourself, right? That's the benefit, I guess. And that's why we have a portfolio that we own by itself. Kind of the downside to this also, it's hard to scale. So, you know, buying a 16 units is a stretch and so that you don't get the economy of scale as much as you get the 200 unit apartment building on the syndications is obviously you get a much bigger deal and you get, you know, better professional management in there and everything else, you obviously get a smaller share of it, but you also have the ability to include more people, you know, and thereby expand your influence, expand your network, and just over time grow that that investor base and everything. And I do it so I can help people get out of the stock market and get into something that actually is going to grow more reliably over time. In terms of what I enjoy, I actually do enjoy having the conversations with people because I'm, I'm kind of a logical person. I can explain how it works on paper. I've actually really enjoyed that and the underwriting and stuff like that. What I'm not a huge fan of is like calling brokers and dealing with brokers and being like kind of that cold calling type person. I, I would actually rather leave that to somebody else on the team to do that. So. I think it's important. First of all, what I love about this, there's so many different ways you can you can get involved, right? You can you can do all the things we talked about. And sometimes I think people try to do one thing and they don't really enjoy it. Like you said, cold calling brokers. Well, you know, if you don't enjoy doing that, then maybe do something else, right? Yeah. So focus on the underwriting or focus on the capital raising, uh, which is awesome. So what do you want to do moving forward? I want to continue to partner with syndicators and, you know, kind of grow the relationship on the syndication side and then the relationship with the investors on my side, right? To kind of bring the two together, right? It's a very inefficient market in bringing, because you can't advertise some deals and stuff like that. So it's inefficient. So 
me doing both seem to suit me. And I, you know, I go to conferences and I, I try to just to network with people and get that stuff. So that's definitely the next, you know, couple of years. Rather raising capital, I can do that remotely from where I am in a smaller town, right? That works out for me. So you've got you know a great portfolio right now. You've had a great experience in a short period of time, two or three years, I think. What would be an advice to someone who wants to start doing what you've done? Is there maybe any shortcuts, things you do differently or things you wouldn't do? <laughs> start bigger. <laughs> you know, the, the fourplex, yeah. I wouldn't go and buy another fourplex again if I knew what I know now. It's just kind of like it's the benefit of scale. I mean, I probably would invest more passively in, in bigger deals because just getting that reliable return without having to do anything is is pretty enticing, right? So cash flow on smaller deals, you know, one month, month maybe a thousand bucks, next month is two hundred because somebody moves out. So it's very it's harder to count on, right? So as you grow your portfolio, obviously you can you can balance that out because you can spread out the vacancies and stuff like that. But um yeah, so just maybe start bigger, even maybe get involved in some syndication, see how they go, you know, as a passive investor and uh you know, be careful about self-managing that uh, I've been there and it's really a lot harder than people make it think it is. That would be some of the things I, I would consider. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I mean, for, for years, we've kind of talked about, hey, syndication is, is where, where is that at the, from an active perspective. But there are definite benefits from going larger. Well, if, if you're a newbie, you haven't done any deal, you're not going to go after 200 units. It's just it's not, not realistic. So, you know, the alternative is, well, go after something smaller, which is what you did. And another alternative, which people don't realize, and I'm glad we're talking about now, is to raise capital for other syndicators who are more experienced and who can get into the 200 unit. Because like you said, it reduces uh, the risk for a variety of different reasons. So if someone's thinking about, oh my gosh, I'm going to passively invest, but I want to be active... And maybe the way to do it is like Jens has done, which is I want to raise money. What kind of preparation should that person do? In other words, how much education do you need? How much experience do you need? You know, what's required to go out there and be successful? Yeah, I mean, really in a you know, mentorship program similar to yours and get, you know, surround myself with, with people that have a lot more experience than me and just really get the training and just get around the people that are, you know, ahead of you kind of, <laughs> I hate to use, but it's kind of, Choose a peer group that are ahead of you and try to live up to what they're doing and make that the norm, right? If the norm is, oh, we're doing 200 deals several times a year, you kind of have to try to do the same thing and not be part of that peer group, right? So try to challenge yourself that way, you know? And then just really try to understand who are the people that are doing syndication. You, you know, if you're starting out to raise money, you may not want to go to the biggest ones out there because they probably have enough people raising money for them already. So you may want to find, you know, a syndicator that has a, cu- a couple of deals under their belt, but they're still building their team and then kind of get involved with them, right? You know, they're doing some smaller deals right, in, a, in a different market. I mean, I'm working with a guy who's doing his, he's done a couple of smaller syndications. Now he's doing a 205 unit syndication now and kind of a little bit on an unusual market, but I'm trying to help him understand the benefit of having people help him raise money so he can focus on the running the deal, right? And stuff like that, so... So this is an interesting point. So as a new capital raiser, you have some of the same issues you have as a new syndicator. You don't have any track record. So if yeah. you come to an established syndicator who's done, you know, a dozen deals or so, they're going to go say, Jens, you know, I don't have any confidence you can raise any money. See you later. Right. You know, t- I'll talk to you <laughs> when you can. So it's sometimes hard to break into that. So the alternative is to find uh, maybe a younger syndicator, maybe who, who has not a, done a dozen deals. Now, of course, at the same time, then that, that increases the, the risk a little bit as well. So how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, and what we did actually, so we kind of worked together in this group. I'm, you know, my my mentorship group. We took, you know, I think it was four or five of us. We approached the syndicator and said, okay, as a group, we think we can raise 
I think we committed to a million and a half, and I think we raised 1.7 or something like that. So we, as a, as a group, went to the syndicate and said, hey, we can help you, and you just have to deal with one person that's kind of the leader of that group versus five individuals, right? And then we can kind of bring that capital to you. And they really like that because then the next deal, they just go to like us again and say, you know, we need whatever number of millions of dollars and then we can help them that way. So that was kind of a team approach to raising money for them. So that, that, that kind of worked out. I, I love that. See, the thing is, you're not saying, you know, I can't do this. You're saying, how can I do this? Oh, gosh, I, yeah. I can't go by myself and, 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 and approach an established syndicator because they won't be interested in that. But my gosh, why don't I venture on the capital raising side? Why don't I, quote, partner with three or four other capital raisers and together we can raise an amount of money that's meaningful to the syndicator and makes it easier to say yes. So yeah. love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, so, it worked out great. That's great. This is awesome. I love looking at all the different ways. This business is so flexible, so open to people's strengths and, and passions. Uh, you just have to have your eyes open and look for opportunities. So Jens, how can people connect with you? Yeah. So they can go to my, uh, my, my email is Jens, that's spelled J-E-N-S at opendoorscapital.com. And if anybody want to get on a call with me or something, they can go to opendoorscapital.com slash call. We can set up a call and talk about real estate or mountain biking or skiing or whatever people's interests are. You know, <laughs> I love to share, and I do some coaching too. It's just like super exciting, you know, and and just kind of bring people up and walk through all these things that I've been through and and, and help them maybe shortcut some of the things. So it's a great business to be in, and thanks for all the work you're doing. I really appreciate that too. Yeah, I love it, uh, Jens. Thanks so much for coming on the show and and sharing your journey with us. Thank you. So after listening to the show, there should be no objection to getting started with multifamily anymore. Because there are so many ways you can get started, you can get started from small. Whether you have experience in that, whether you have cash or not, it doesn't matter. One of the key lessons from Jens is you have to be resourceful. If you have money, great, use it. If you don't, raise it. Even if you have money, you're going to run out of it. You're going to have to raise it eventually. Think joint venturing. Okay, there's so many different ways you can joint venture. And, you know, we have uh, some of our mentoring students, for example, to overcome some of the challenges that Jens has are, are joint venturing with each other. They are joint venturing with each other uh, while someone's a deal finder, one's a capital raiser, or multiple capital raisers joint venturing to raise money for a more established syndicator, right? So there's very powerful ways that you can joint venture. Uh, you can start small. You can get started by passively investing to kind of learn the business, see how it goes. But joint venturing is probably is the most powerful way to break into this business because, as Jens outlines, you can get you can start with small, and that's fine. Okay, there's no there's no problem with getting started with small. However, everybody acknowledges that the larger properties you have economies of scale, you reduce the risk, and they're more predictable in nature. Making small increments in net operating income have huge results on the back end. It's not rocket science to do that. Uh, we do it all the time in our deals. And it's just very, very predictable. So joint venturing is very powerful. And within our, our environment, we have something called the Elite Investors Club, which all of our mentoring students are part of. And we kind of facilitate that networking in the way I described. I was talking to... Now, Andy Vaughn, just the other day, a mentoring student, and he has done three deals now. And all three deals were joint ventures with other mentoring students. It is amazing. They've syndicated their own deal and they raised money for somebody else. So it's really, now he's, of course, looking for his own deals. But if you don't have a current deal right now, but you have some investors, well, then go find someone who found a deal and bring that to your investors because you you need to keep your investors engaged. You can't have your investors, you know, have a meeting with the investor to get all excited. And they don't, you don't bring them in a deal. 
for in forever, right? So if you don't have a deal in a, you know in one, two, three months, and that contact is getting dry, why don't you then just bring that to someone who does have a deal? Now you've done your first deal, and your investors are engaged. So joint venturing is very, very powerful. So if you're interested in finding more about our mentorship program, it's a it's actually very simple. It's just a very simple call. There's no obligation. It's at themichaelblank.com forward slash mentor. You can schedule a call with us to see if it's right for you. It's not right to, for everybody, but it's just really amazing what our mentoring students are doing and how quickly they're doing it as well. Pass investing, another great way to get involved. Uh, there's a lot of great operators out there. I'd like to think we're one of them. If you're interested in signing up for our investor portal, go to themichaelblank.com forward slash invest, and that will also prompt a call with us so we get to know each other a little bit more and make sure there's a, there's a fit as well. So again, so excited about this business. The end result is exactly the same in all cases, financial freedom. I don't care if you have a million dollars uh, to invest. You're probably in a high taxing job. You're in a dentist, attorney, uh, a doctor, and you don't want to keep doing everything that you're doing for the rest of your life. And the passive investor who has money has the same problem as you know the young buck who's got nothing but time and hustle, right? We're all looking for financial freedom. And what's really exciting about that, we can all come together as a team and accomplish great things and achieve our financial freedom in the process. So hope you guys were inspired today by Jens's message today. I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.